Hello, welcome to say time to say goodbye. <laughs> I, it's the twenty second of twenty twenty. It's my sister's birthday. Happy birthday to my sister. Happy birthday. Um, Happy birthday. Yeah, she's 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 reached the age of thirty nine, which you know is I think it's like a difficult You guys year. are so close in age. Yeah, she's yeah. she's less than two years younger than mm-hmm. me. I don't know. When I was thirty nine, I did not think about it very much though, I will say. Like I was not worried about being forty. In the same way that I was worried about being 30 when I was 29. Oh, really? Hmm. Did you guys experience that? Like 29 was like one of the worst years of my life, I think. (laughs) First of all, yeah, the financial crash had just happened, you know, and I had this novel that was supposed to be sold and it actually been through an agent and been picked up. But before they could get all the contracts out and stuff like that, I have no idea if this was actually going to happen or not. But, you know, it was getting somewhere. And then the crash happened and they canceled, they froze all new acquisitions. This is and your so novel then, that came out though, or no? This no, no, no. Oh, okay. This is never will never be read. Okay. In retrospect, it's like good it that it blessing. didn't come out. <laughs> yeah, <'cause> it was <laughs> like the novel that came out. Uh, I think I can say this now. Like, you know, like I think I hope one day to write a better novel than that novel. I think it's a be- better is like the kindest way to put it for myself. Even though I think, you know, I'm happy with, with the novel that I wrote, but you know, I don't think that. Like, I, I, I think I can write a better novel, but like the first one that was going to come out was not good, you know, <laughs> so maybe I dodged a okay. bullet. But anyway, so I was totally broke. I had like 800 bucks and, you know, I had never published anything. I was 29 years old and I was like, I was like, what's going on? You know, I've been trying to be a writer for seven years. Nothing's working out. Um, and uh, I'm going to be 30. I'm just going to be one of these like 30 year old MFA graduates who's never published anything, you know, who every time you, people ask, well, what do you do? You just say, well, you know, like, uh, I do a lot of different things, but you can't say you're a writer, you know? So you have this like stupid narcissistic, like fight in your head every single time. Anyway, that's what, what 29 was like for me. It was fucking miserable. <laughs> Wait, do you have a, I just want to make sure you still have a intact copy of the first novel. This is, this is Andy and Tammy, by the way, they're with me. <laughs> we the have answer, to sign this copy. I know. No, no. For, the, for uh, posterity's sake, you know. I, of course I have a copy of it, a digital copy of it. But, oh, you got to um, print that up. I don't trust digital copy. We just have to I mean, call I would not be mad if it disappeared <laughs> from the face of the earth forever. It was like, I don't even know. It was supposed to be like a, it was like a satirical novel that was like, an Asian version of Life Goes On. Do you remember that TV show? No. What Tim, you remember it. Life Goes remember On. It had oh, like that a, show? The it sitcom? Had a kid with, yeah, it had a yeah. kid with, with Down syndrome in it named Corky. Yeah. And like his sister, Becca. And, you know, there's a, her, Becca's boyfriend had AIDS, right? <laughs> like, yeah. So okay, it was okay, like okay. every, you remember this. All right. Uh, so yeah. like, it was, it was before like, me, but yeah. It was a satirical version of that TV show <laughs> as a literary <laughs> novel. <laughs> okay, maybe this is a good thing, Jay. But wait, yeah, this no, is supposed to be about I your would, sister. <laughs> I would 100% be canceled if that book had come out. I mean, if, that, if I wrote that book now and it came out, I think I would be canceled. Not because it was insensitive to like uh, anybody around there, but it was like a joke about a TV show that did include some jokes that might have been taken out of context or something like that, you know? Anyway, okay. yeah, whatever. let's leave that. We've, we've started the show. But happy birthday, um, Jay sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's 39. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Uh, I mean, Tammy is traveling. Do you, I mean, you've seen the great state of Washington at this point or uh, in Idaho as well. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm going back to Washington from Montana, so I'm in the middle of nowhere right now. Where, like Coeur d'Alene or something like that? No, actually, it's not the middle of nowhere. If you guys are from the Tri-Cities, apologies. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I am in Kennewick, Washington. <laughs> I guess I had to say as someone from the west, from Western Wait, Washington. Wait, Kennewick? <laughs> is that near, like, Spokane? Uh, it's not too far. It's south southwest of there. Kennewick so. famously has one of the earliest, like, uh, homo sapien skeletons discovered. Kennewick yeah. man. Okay. <laughs> you may have heard you, of it. You, you texted that. You te- that was one of the things you texted earlier to our group chat, and I just was like, Jay "Oh, was yeah, like, what man. is that?" I, I didn't bother. <laughs> I, like, I don't know what Kennewick man is. Um, Andy, how are you doing? How's Philly? Uh, it's okay. Um, we're kind of trans. Our 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 school has ended this semester. They, oh, that's right. right. The strategy was to avoid. That's why you're going home. That's right. why you're heading out. We're all done. Yeah, and to avoid Thanksgiving. And now I'm kind of worried. I mean, we're like gonna you know hide from the world. But yeah, I'm worried. You know, like students traveling, but also just like people. I think are probably gonna just go ahead and have Thanksgiving anyway. I know. Even though. I guess the CDC said not to, or or some of these authority figures said not to, right? Yeah. Yeah, you can't stop people from getting together for Thanksgiving. Yeah. I I think it's going to, I don't know. Like I've said on earlier shows, like I tend to err on the stupid side of coronavirus, and I have for a while, and I've been wrong every single time. <laughs> but this time, I, I'm like, I don't know. This seems like it's going to be really bad, right? Yeah. Like it seems really almost inevitable that it's going to be bad. And what I thought was just like a fringe type of thing that people were taking, you know, videos of like these people without masks on. seems like it's much more real now. And I don't know how masks are going to help people with Thanksgiving dinner anyway, you know, because mm. it's like, but because you know, no one's eating Thanksgiving dinner with a mask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it yeah. doesn't matter. If you're but, indoors, uh, it's bad. I guess gonna, they could, I, like, s- s- open the window and sit six feet apart could help. But No, but still, know. right? No, you're, like, no, eating. Like, so around Christmas time, I imagine that what's going to happen is we're going to start getting all these, you know, he went home for Thanksgiving. Little did he know he had the coronavirus. Exactly. And now his parents are dead type of stories <laughs> coming out. It's, it's sad, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we're not doing anything here. I uh, I ordered some groceries today. And I think we're gonna like smoke a duck or something. We're, <laughs> we're not seeing any shelter in place. Can, I yeah. Question: Did you all do Thanksgiving as kids uh, with your family? Like oh, yeah, like the sure. turkey and mashed potatoes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like okay. mixed, like Korean and American. Okay. What did you do? No, we didn't do any Korean stuff. Oh. We might have thoroughly yeah. American. Yeah, no. I remember once my family gave us like cubed ham with rice, and I was like, "There's a Thanksgiving." <laughs> it's basically like spam fried rice. For Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! That's like what I would cook myself when my parents were at home. Um, <laughs> yeah, we don't. We have. We would do the whole turkey thing and carve it and stuff like that. And I don't know. It was always like, I don't know. We don't have to talk about how turkey is bad on the show, but it's not particularly. <laughs> it's 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 very difficult for the Asian palate, I think. To eat turkey, oh, especially yeah. for like my parents, for example, they're just like this. Just, you know, I, they just didn't like it. It's like super dry. Yeah, it's like dry, but and the, it's like the dark tough. part is okay, right? I haven't eaten it in like thirty years, so I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. you haven't eaten turkey in thirty years because I don't. I was a veg- I became a vegetarian when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember the turkey skin was very tough. I haven't had it in thirty yeah. years. Yeah, 
yeah. we're the two yeah. veg on this show. Right, exactly. I don't think we're going to do it. I don't think we're going to do turkey. I kind of want to do it because it's our first Thanksgiving in the house, and oh, it's yeah. the first one that our kid is going to yeah. really be like old enough to participate in. But at the same time, it's like there's only three of us. So I, mean, I know, up. exactly. I know, right? Anyway, we've gone on for eight minutes now. Let's talk about the first thing. Speaking of coronavirus, um, one of the things we want to talk about today is what is happening with this vaccine. And I think it's something that we haven't discussed on the show at all. But it's something that we do chat about and we follow, we think about. And, you know, I, I think there's two ways to think about what's happening with the vaccine right now. The first is, I am certainly not the only person to say this, that the news seems to be pretty good. Right. Like the the vaccine came out earlier than people thought it was going to come out. It's more effective than people thought it was going to be like it seems like neither Moderna nor Pfizer, who are the two big pharma companies, although Moderna is not a big, but the two pharma companies that are have the two leading uh, vaccine candidates, they're not so open with the data that they've gotten. But nobody seems to be like calling for it or saying like, hey, you know, like prove that prove all this everyone seems to be taking them in pretty good faith and i don't i don't see why they wouldn't right because like it's not like something that you can like you know be like okay like we've bought ourselves a little bit of time you know like behind the scenes like, you know <laughs> like mop a, it up and uh, hope elizabeth nobody holmes, knows yeah. hope nobody notices he can't elizabeth holmes it's like a uh, benadryl <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um by the way if elizabeth if elizabeth holmes elizabeth holmes is like you know like she was somewhat vindicated not in the sense that like she uh, in any other way, except that yeah, it does like, seem like the headed? testing mechanism. The idea would be great. Would yeah. Propose, yeah, it would oh, be cool if, yeah. if they could make one of those. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> it would be awesome. You put your finger in and it's like, do you have coronavirus or not? you like, oh, that would be amazing. They could like put one outside of every school, you know? <laughs> like, I, mean, I don't know. Um, that's why um, Kissinger invested so much in it. <laughs> I know, Kissinger and all these like. Yeah, that's why. Generals. There's two ways to think about it. The first is, yes, it seems to be okay, right? And um, but the second part is what I think that we should talk about, which is how is this going to how is this going to happen? You know, like, how is this going to work? How, how is this going to get out to people? Um, and I think that people, not everyone, but I think some people have this sense that basically it's like a truck, you know, right? Like you got some trucks, you load up some vaccines, you take them to like medical <laughs> providers and to CVSs. And that people just line up and get shot in the arm like that. That doesn't seem to be true at all. Right. Like, Tammy, what's your understanding of how this is actually going to work? Poorly and unjustly. I don't know. What is the right answer to this question? <laughs> Not, don't don't editorialize. Just give us some facts here. Like, you know, like, what, what do we know about the rollout of this? I really have very little understanding of that. I mean, that's kind of how I imagine it, too. Essentially, like a very ad hoc supply chain, like going out to private industry and, you know, for the most part, having like American free market principles, like dictate who gets it, which is the fear. In America. Right? In America. Andy, let's not, I'm not even talking about the global situation. Which yeah, is- we can share that. We can say that for a little bit later. Yeah. Andy, what, what's your understanding? Like, you know, like, how do you think, how does this happen? Yeah. So the big picture thing is the two ones that you mentioned, Moderna, Moderna, and, Moderna, yeah. and Pfizer, they're doing this new technology, mRNA, which um, could be this huge breakthrough that even like helps with like cancer research and all sorts of vaccines. Um, but uh, it's really capital intensive. It's, it takes a lot of money to make and a lot of money to keep it good. Um, so it's not like a flu vaccine where you're just kind of good, like, meaning like uh, oh, like not to spoil. Yeah. Right? So there's like it needs to be basically Durable. kept in like a 
extremely cold freezer. Yeah, and thousands of dollars of, of equipment yeah. is needed. And the vaccine itself, from what I've seen, is like quoted around thirty, forty dollars a person. And yeah, you know, government like the U.S. government might cover that, but then it becomes a question of well, thirty, forty dollars is a lot of money per person to many countries around the world that are not the U.S. and Europe and you know parts of East Asia, right? So that's this, then we get to this question of um, the other thing is there are other vaccines out there, yeah, that are being developed um, primarily by Chinese companies that are more traditional. And are not as capital intensive, and um, I think we. I don't. I don't know why they're not being reported on or written about in the U.S. press, just because they're probably not going to affect the U.S. Yeah. population. But from a global perspective, it is kind of interesting to track. Kind of this, this is a terrible this- analogy, but it kind of reminds me of like. Uh, macbook pros you know where (laughs) (laughs) and chromebooks where like you're like look all i do here is i watch youtube you know um i might visit a couple adult websites from time to time (laughs) and i do my email you know and i read social media on this and sometimes i type uh and people are like what you know you go to the apple store and they're like well what you actually need is a chromebook for this right but they say like but if you want to render like you know 3d animation like this is the one that you want so obviously one is better than the other one is just much more expensive than the other yeah it's like iphone android uh, same thing yeah or like you know you get your spec out top (laughs) iphone or you have like a hundred and 150 dollar like huawei is that how you pronounce it huawei Huawei, like uh phone which will do the exact same thing and you don't need all the other stuff like you know the you, people are like oh the camera's better but you know who can tell like you're watching looking at a photo <laughs> on your phone so like, who, who really cares anyway, except you might die a, <laughs> i don't know I, that is a bad analogy so i apologize <laughs> but like that's generally what we have here in china that you, what you have is you have stuff that is based on older scientific technology that can be created more rapidly more cheaply might not be as effective, right? The mRNA stuff is like, but at some point, like, you know, this is something that I read in an article that Andy shared with us from Sarah Zhang at The Atlantic, which is essentially that like 90% is like kind of like, that's amazing, 90 or 95% efficacy for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And that you don't even really need 90%. Like, it's awesome to have 90%. But, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get enough of the population to have herd immunity through the people who have already been infected and the people who have the vaccine together, right? right? Like that's the idea behind the vaccine. Then you might be able to do it with like 80%, you know, or 85%. Like you don't actually need something that's disaffective. And so those are the, that seems to be the two competing economic ideas behind the vaccines, right? Like you have the expensive American model you know, the cheap Chinese model. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> it's like fucking TVs or something like that. <laughs> Actually, although there are no expensive American TVs. It would be like Japanese versus Chinese or something like that. So um, this obviously is going to create a lot of problems, I think. But, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I, the, what I want to talk to you guys about today is just like, how big of a problem is it going to be? Um, Tammy, you seem to have like thoughts on this. So like, how, how do you think this, how do you think this part of it, the idea that, Part of the world is going to get one vaccine and then the wealthy part of the world might get another vaccine. And then there are all these people in the middle who have to like make these choices between these two things. Yeah, I think it's extremely concerning. I mean, for me, it just reminds me of the AIDS crisis, the early days of the AIDS crisis, right? Or the late days of the AIDS crisis as well. And the unjust distribution of medication there. And um, yeah, I think that's concerning. But I think I've been thinking actually more about even 
just in the domestic context, what it'll look like, because, um, you know, obviously there are different ideas of distribution and I don't think anything's been decided yet, but who will get it? We've talked a lot on this show, for instance, about how we don't seem to care about elderly people. I don't really see them being at the head of the queue on this. You know, it'll likely go to, you know, obviously it should go to healthcare workers, but also to a lot of young people. And yeah, so I just think there's a lot of equity concerns and I don't really know what the answer is or what rules would govern that sort of decision making. It just seems like such a difficult ethical decision and I don't trust any of our policymakers to make those decisions. So I would like, you know, I think ideally I would there would be some sort of like just committee that would have like stakeholders from different, you know, walks of life to be able to help make these decisions. Well, so there is this thing that the WHO started called COVAX, I believe that's the acronym. And it's an attempt to kind of have all the countries around the world, they sign up and they just kind of agree to share the vaccine. And it's like Mm -hmm. proportional first come first serve, no, no favorites. The United States has not signed on. So this is a problem. And also, even if you sign on to COVAX, which a lot of these European countries have, and they're, they're trying to support it. There's no, there's no rule against you, Germany, like independently reaching out to Pfizer and mm. buying up all the Pfizer vaccine, for instance. And is so it that, just WHO members? Uh, China's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, then this, like Taiwan and the US yeah, would it. <laughs> that's what I thought about. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Taiwan is part of it, but the thing is, like, China is a part of it. Yeah. So that's why I think that's, I think, the mechanism through which a lot of the China vaccines might get delivered ultimately to mm. a lot of the sort of post colonial world. Right. And then the United States, I think, uh, you know, there's all these uh, numbers out there about pre purchases, like who's already reserved their vaccine. Oh um, and the United States, the number of reservations is already larger than the world's population because like the rich countries are reserving like two or three vaccines at once. Right. Oh to, and the United States is a leader in that. So they're going full board, the sort of free market. Right. So there's like a, it's huh. like, it's like buying sneakers online or something you get, <laughs> <laughs> or buying tickets online. You can like reserve your spot. Yeah. You like click, yeah. Click I guess. The uh, NBA has bought them all. Yeah, yeah so exactly. it's like, yeah. like they took all the tests, the and now they took all the vaccines. <laughs> Every NBA player gets five vaccines. <laughs> Wake up at seven o'clock Pacific, six fifty-five Pacific time because there's some new Air Jordan fours coming out. Right. And you're sitting there just spamming the buy button right. <laughs> for the vaccine. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, somebody named Jayati Ghosh uh, wrote in ProjectSyndicate.org. I thought this is something that Andy pulled that I thought was interesting, which is talks to about some of the scarcity that might happen around this, which is within days of its announcement, Pfizer had sold more than 80% of the vaccine doses it will be able to produce by the end of next year to governments representing only 14% of the global population. In other words, if this is the first safe and effective vaccine to get to market, the vast majority of the world's population will have almost no access to it. Because a pandemic can only be overcome when it is overcome everywhere, embracing an every country for itself approach would seem irrational. And yet, as the unseemly competition for vaccine doses indicates, that is exactly what many mm-hmm. countries have done. So it seems like what's happening, and obviously this was always going to happen with Trump or anybody, but especially yeah. with Trump, who sort of like actually just said this. Remember when he was trying to like, <laughs> when he was trying to like buy the German vaccines, but he wasn't going to share with other oh people. Yeah. It was like he was doing real estate deals or something like that. He's like, look, if I buy this corner lot and then I buy this lot, then I interrupt oh. like this chain of like That's development. So they have to pay me off for it. Um, <laughs> so it seems like this is going to happen. And I don't, quite know what the solution is or what a solution would be but it seems like the idea that the world will all cooperate and try and break 
you know, break this thing down is not happening. Yeah. Like I, I felt like there was a period of time, I think in the spring where I felt like that might happen. And now in retrospect, yeah. it was like incredibly naive. I mean, so this, this is like, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. And this thing is probably going to go the way it seems to go. What kind of worries me though, is like, I was reading the New York times uh, has this long feature on the vaccines and is just this like absolute celebration of pharmace- pharmaceutical companies and and basically dismissing government support as like intrusive and inefficient and like that runs completely counter to the whole like medicare for all argument that's being made that was that is being made right by half of the democratic party and i think like people are not gonna i don't know if people see the connect the dots between the two right but between the sort of celebrating the vaccine science and, and sort of like capital s in a vacuum like this great you know breakthrough uh, with the protagonist being these executives and scientists in the laboratory, right? But the bigger social context is like, well, if you make these your heroes and and you listen to like the executives and the cheerleaders, then you would have to believe like the most, you know, the best thing for human society is like private enterprise and and private, you know, profit motive. And we should not have the government involved in health. And, and you know, it's, it's a little, it worries me that like this is going to, kind of I don't know, freeze people's brains and kind of like make them forget all the stuff we've been arguing for the last few years about how we should actually have more government mm. involvement regulating the prices of these goods. And and if you if the government actually funds a lot of this research that uh, takes away a lot of like, you know, these drug companies trying to like hoard it for themselves and profit as much as possible off of them. Um, uh, Tammy. Yeah. Tammy Kim, do you feel <laughs> like... <laughs> Do you think, uh, Andy, I think that what you're saying is correct, but I have a follow-up question about it, which is like, do you do you actually think that anyone outside of these types of pieces that come out, like, it seems like it has worked where people are very skeptical in general of the pharmaceutical industry, right? Sort of like the cigarette industry where you can, at some point, the population just flips and everybody hates the tobacco companies, right? And thinks they're evil. Do you think that's happened with the, I, I guess I was reading that piece, Andy, that you're alluding to, and it was in the times and it was, it's called, uh, it's called, what is the title of it? Politics, science, and the remarkable race for coronavirus vaccine is by, it has like six bylines that I won't bother reading because, <laughs> um, but you know, like it, it felt almost like a relic to me, right? Like it felt like it wasn't something, and this might just be me being in a bubble, but like, I don't really see people yelling for the private sector to solve all of this. And I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, they were. And I think that people might not, the fact that they didn't, right? Like, so remember, like, back then, they're like, Google and Google and Apple are going to join together to make Mm -hmm. a tracking app. That never fucking happened, (laughs) (laughs) right? Um, Remember when Trump was like, Google is going to, like, spearhead the testing and the tracking, and he said that in his speech, and then Google's like, oh, we're not doing any of that. And then then they're like, we've started a program in, like, Sunnyvale or something like that, or whatever the town where Google is, you know? And then in the end, like, they they ended up not doing anything as well. Um, Do you remember when, like, uh, you know, like, like people like why doesn't jeff bezos use like the amazon infrastructure to get out testing kits to everybody's like you know that would have cost him nothing it would have given him all the goodwill in the world people would have like you know like if elizabeth warren wanted to like go bust up amazon it would have been much harder because people have been like this infrastructure is what saved us through testing they just didn't do any of it the private sector did jack shit to help 
uh, with the coronavirus response. The only person who seemed to do anything was was like the fucking Twitter guy who gave like some obscene amount of money, like a hundred one point two billion dollars or something like that. But you know, you can be as cynical as possible. It's a lot of money to personally give. You know, like I don't have one point two billion dollars to give. Um, but like, you know, like even that, if, if that's like the best thing that you can point to is, you know, like did Facebook do anything? None of these companies did anything, right? And so um, I don't know. I think there is more cynicism about the private sector than there might have been before, but maybe I'm wrong. Tammy, anyway, this is a very long winded way of saying, Tammy, Kim, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I had thought generally we were on a trajectory of being more skeptical about pharmaceutical companies because of the opioid ep- epidemic and the Sacklers primarily. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, of course. I actually think that Andy's right because the state and federal government responses to the pandemic have been so horrible that I think people are are super hungry for like any kind of salvation. And yeah. the problem with the pharmaceuticals, and we've encountered this over and over again with every like illness and epidemic that we face is that like their celebration of like private capital and ingenuity is like such a terrible lie, right? Because it always is like at the heart through academic and government funding that these things get developed and that people get trained to come into pharmaceutical companies. So I always feel like this is like tech companies with the internet and it's like, wait, we paid for that to be developed, you know? And so I do think there's a real danger right now. I do think it's going to take organizing for us to get away from this and to reintegrate like the the desire for health with like our actual social goal. So I, I actually think that's true. Yeah. I think the next time someone uh, calls for Medicare for all and, and, or some sort of like socialization of medicine and drug mm-hmm. pricing, the companies are just going to say, look at, look at right? the vaccine we came up with. That, that's yeah, impossible. That's, that's impossible with the, just sickening, you know, yeah. price, price controls and all that. Like they have, you know, and that New York Times article is not so much celebrating Pfizer. So it was um, profiling with this Moderna, Moderna, which is like, I don't know how big they are, how exp- how rich they are, but they are profiled as a sort of like petty bourgeois, right? They're sort of like the small little entrepreneurial underdog. Yeah. That, and this is like their the first big break. Yeah. yeah, it's like a very personalized, like you, you see the world through the eyes of the mm-hmm. CEO of this drug company, uh, of this drug company. So I think, you know, as, as we talked about with, with other things, like I think a lot of the, American political perspective is that of the petty of, of a small entrepreneur, right? More mm-hmm. than more so than anything else, and so I think that a lot of sympathy could be created with these narratives. Yeah, um, I changed my mind. I think that I think <laughs> Jamie, I think you're right. I think it's the government fucked up so much that people are going to basically say Pfizer is good, um, and yeah, the government is probably going to fuck up distributing this thing too. Um, I don't know. It's like I try to be reasonable about this stuff, right? So I'm not like just giving hot takes. And so for part of me, it's like, well, they did come up with the vaccine. So yeah, that's, sure. that's positive. They, they did it faster than other places. You know, there's no country with like, you know, where everyone works for like the state and checks in and wears like a burlap sack and goes into the lab and starts like fiddling with titration. Not yet, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> where they came up with the vaccine, right? So, um, you know, like there, you, you have to like weigh that, but then the way that that sort of comes out, which is that like, yeah, maybe it is just that, People think, well, we had all these brilliant entrepreneurial things and then that'll get like, you know, I'm sure that's going to at some point get tied to like the whole immigrant thing. Right. Like, you know, this is like, oh, no. these are genius immigrants that we led into our country. No, it, it already started. Like, I remember one of the defenses, remember at the beginning of the coronavirus and people were really mad at Asians and the defensive agents was like, we're doctors, you know, yeah, we're God, like, uh, we, we're yeah. making. And then one of the people that they've always point to 
was the uh was one of the heads of Moderna who's like an Asian woman, I believe, you know, oh, and they're okay. like, yeah, and they're like, if I'm wrong about this, then please forgive me because you know, <laughs> um, I'm not fact checking right now on the fly, but. Um, and they would point to her and be like, look, she might deliver us a vaccine, right? And I, I don't know, maybe she did. Right, look, we should we should Google this right now. I think the bio... Asian woman... I should look this up also, but I there think the bio, BioNTech or whatever... I was just going to say, there was Turkish a profile of that, right? those, yeah, the Turkish couple that's behind the... No, it's a, it's a the Times is like on a full like propaganda tour for like the scientists yeah. who did it for us. But... Uh... The whole like um, critique of the times as in his class character started to like really shine, yeah. shine with this one article. I felt like <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I think we can concretely say and that we can look to is Brazil, and Brazil is one of the countries where I think that we can say uh, we can look to it and we can sort of start to see how this thing is going to play out because Brazil has been somewhat proactive about securing vaccines for their population. However. At the same time, in Brazil is an interesting thing because it a uh, place because they have terrible outbreak like the United States, right? Like they couldn't get it under control, much like the United States. And so, um, you know, you look at this and there's an article in Reuters that said, you know, that Sao Paulo has signed a deal with Sinovac. Sinovac is the company, is a Chinese company that made a that sort of, you know, I don't I forget the Chromebook of vaccines that we <laughs> talked about earlier. Um, and that they were that Sao Paulo is getting 60 million doses by the end of February, right, for their population from Sinovac. Um, and that this has led to a certain type of politicization, which, you know, is similar to like Huawei and TikTok in Brazil. Um, earlier, and this is from a Fortune article that came out, which is that early this early last week, Brazilian officials signaled their favorite Sinovac candidate, Coronavac. Hel <laughs> Very good names for this. Health Minister Eduardo Pazuello announced that the federal government would purchase 16 million doses of the vaccine from the uh, Butantan Institute as part of a national immunization program. Bolsonaro derided Coronavac as Joy Dorio's Chinese vaccine. Bolsonaro has had a mercurial relationship with China. He started his term as a brash China hawk, dubbed the Tropical Trump. Recently, the Brazilian president seems to have turned out more towards the United States, pledging support for Trump's re-election and reportedly considering a ban on Huawei technologies. And so even within Brazil, right, like what is happening is that cities, I think, is it is it is it individual cities, Andy, like uh, like Sao Paulo and different districts are trying to get vaccines for their own people. But the overarching government led by Bolsonaro is basically saying like, we don't want the Chinese vaccine because you know, we want to be anti-China. Is, yeah. is that generally what's happened? I think what happened, yeah, China doesn't have enough candidates uh, to test it out. So they even made an agreement with Sao Paulo, the city. Um, and the mayor likes, you know, Sinovac or Sinopharm, whichever one it is. And they, and he likes the vaccine and he wants it. And he's been fighting with Bolsonaro mm. um, about over this. And yeah, I think it's interesting because again, this is sort of, What's the word? Like it's kind of like not parallel to, but it's, take, it's taking the same shape as all these development fights around the world, where China investment is like in places like Brazil and India and the Middle East and Pakistan, and these are like the same places that are interested in buying the vaccine. So it's I you know there's no I have no judgment. I'm just kind of trying to like figure out the shape of this, and it looks like very similar, right? The development and then the the vaccine sort of geopolitical contest that's happening. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to believe that this is not going to end up with like people sort of in the PPE. Remember when P hospitals were short on PPE and states were short on PPE and everyone was desperately trying to source shit back to China and yeah. like, you know, meeting cargo ships and in like abandoned airstrips and stuff like that. 
I wonder if it's going to end up looking like that. And it's hard to imagine that it won't because we don't have a better system right now. Mm -hmm. And the demand for this stuff is going to be so high. Um, uh, and, you know, here, like I wanted to also read sort of a um, breakdown of how the pricing is going to be, because I think it sort of underlines the way in which this is going to be a problem, which is that the Pfizer vaccine costs about $20 a dose. Now, at first glance, it's not that much, right? Um, doesn't seem like. Yeah, if you could take twenty dollars and you don't have to wear a mask anymore, you go to Las Vegas or go to a club or something. It's like, sure, <laughs> yeah. What else am I spending that money on? But um, you know, that's five times as much as the Sinovac vaccine, and so you scale that out, and you're like, well, that is a five times as much money. Um, and it's not just five dollars or twenty dollars a dose; it has to be stored in like this weird ice pack thing. Right. Like a sort of it's like the kimchi fridge of, <laughs> of, of vaccines. And those things cost about seven, eight thousand dollars each. And so it's going to be very difficult to get those things manufactured. It's difficult to manufacture vaccines. And so I don't know. It, it seems like we're going to have a thing of two worlds, two vaccines. Or many vaccines, but in many multiple vaccines. worlds. Yeah. Because yeah. I think there, none, of, none of these companies, none of these sources can provide nearly enough. Um, yeah. to cover like even a, like a sizable fraction of the whole world. Mm -hmm. um, one a, a new study or website came up this week from Duke, your favorite university, uh, saying that uh, they don't think that the world will be fully vaccinated until 2024. Mm. Right. So we're looking at like stages mm -hmm. and rich versus poor and like yeah. near the United States, near China and all that stuff. And, um, you know, as like selfish Americans, I think we can be happy. I think we're probably all going to I think, I think we'll be okay. Life is going to be yeah. good for us in the next year or so. Uh, better for us, probably. But, um, you know, as a, as a member of the world, citizen of the world kind of perspective, this is, I think, something we should track. Yeah, it makes me sad, too, because, you know, there have been a lot of things in the news about, oh, you know, during the Trump era with all of the authoritarians around the world, we've had a fall off in cooperation. But look at the scientists during COVID, there has been a lot of cooperation. And while that's true on the research end to sort of understand the disease and try to move towards some solutions, I don't think that's as true on the vaccine end, as you've just pointed out, Andy, with this bifurcation. And so it just, I, I think like all of our mechanisms to actually cooperate, like as faulty as they are, you know, the UN, WHO, all of our inter international institutions, they're totally... I mean, honestly, they're kind of bankrupt right now, and I just don't yeah. know how we can exert power as ordinary working people on this front. You know, I think like in the U.S., I can see some of the healthcare unions, you know, being given at least a sort of symbolic role in some of these discussions. But beyond that, I really don't see how the working class can exert power. And it's yeah, it's just it's like, what do you think? What, what would they be demanding, though, like in the United States context? Yeah. Like well, cheaper, I think... cheaper access or? more universal access like what would we what would we yeah. say what would we fight for if we had the power to yeah <laughs> if, <laughs> um, if we had the power to yeah i think yeah definitely like subsidization you know equitable access in poorer areas areas that people don't want to yeah. go or where you know where logistics are already a huge issue yeah um you know rural areas are, are another thing native american reservations i mean there's just so many different sort of geographic and social factors so the i mean i don't know how reliable this is i saw a, a tweet from kamala harris like the biden harris plan is to cover everyone i don't know yeah how how much they can actually do that like is that an executive order thing can they 
Do yeah. we have to pass legislation? And um, again, does that mean like in three years we'll cover everyone? Or does right. that, you know, so how, I don't know how that's going to work or if the insurance companies are going to fight back on that. Um, so, I don't yeah, know. I, I guess it's like uh, the thought is basically that, I, I guess it, just to, I think that it, it was always going to be many vaccines around the world, right? And the thing that you pray is that there's not that none of them have adverse effects that yeah. end up affecting large portions of entire countries. So, you know, like doesn't have to be something as disastrous as thalidomide, which you know caused birth defects in children. Yeah. But it can be it can be stuff like people grow seriously ill. You know, mm-hmm. it can be something as simple as like you know like people's lung capacity gets decreased or they lead to some sort of vitamin imbalance or whatever and leads to anemia. All these types of side effects are possible when everybody is rushing at the same time. And I think in the United States, we can be relative, like Andy said, I think we'd be relatively certain that this will be safe. You know, I don't know. What generation of vaccine are you going to take? Are you going to take like the first gen? <laughs> you know, this is like our Apple analysis again. <laughs> Which generation of iPhone? Oh, no, I, I have to buy a new computer. That's why I keep thinking. <laughs> uh, like vaccine uh, rumors or something. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. The wire cutter of vaccines. There's a, it's, I mean, look, that would probably be a good post for the wire cutter, don't you think? If they're like, we can get all the I don't know. I, I think that, uh, I don't know. I think that it's going to take much longer than we think it is. In the same way that every single thing that we thought was going to happen didn't happen, it's hard for me to imagine that this yeah. is going to happen. Um, I have a question. I mean, how, with all the anti vaxxer stuff, I don't know how, to, how much to believe. Is it, do you think it's a thing like, let's say, the mountain states are going to be have like a ton of anti-vaxxers who won't take the vaccine, but all the people in like New York city who believe in vaccines will take it. Like, will it actually show no. up that way? I don't think so. No. I It'll just be, I... So I mean, are anti-vaxxers even a thing to worry about or is that just like a media conspiracy? I... I think that herd immunity can be reached in the United States pretty easily without the help of anti-vaxxers. I think it depends though, because if you're talking about you know, enclaves like the Hasidic areas of New York City, I would say are more dangerous in the mountain states or, you know, some of Jay's hippie ass neighbors, you know? So yeah. I think. So Berkeley, Berkeley. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think like statistically speaking, but it, again, I think in like certain isolated settings, it could be an issue. Yeah. Um, but not not over years, right? Maybe maybe there'll be small pockets, but eventually. Yeah, you know, I hope not. I was thinking it. about like because um, we've talked so much about Korea and Taiwan's success in fighting the coronavirus to date, and how you know through their pharmacy and national healthcare setups, they have such just an easy and efficient way of reaching people. I mean, even just the like, let's say the U.S. made the vaccines free and had good distribution points. Even then, it's such a haul because we have no systematic healthcare system and we have no, we don't have any culture of like actually relying on a centralized authority to give us stuff. So I'm just, it's yeah. terrible. It's like, anyway, and that's the best case scenario, you know? Yeah, yeah I, don't, I just, I don't know how they're going to roll this thing out. You know, I guess they do roll out flu shots every year. You yeah. know, and so maybe I, I haven't had way, one in but... years. What? Are you an anti-vaxxer? <laughs> I mean, it is not hard to get a flu shot. Like, you know, you I'm don't just like, saying. I if know, I had a Medicaid not, you can, card, you, can you know, go to CVS and you could get a 
flu shot for like fifteen dollars. You know, getting flu shot is not hard in America right now. I don't think that we can. I don't think there's any like. But what about these people who can't? Like most people can get a flu shot. Can we agree on that? So if they can roll, if they can roll that out, then maybe they can roll this out. Um, I have no idea. Uh, Everything I've thought about the coronavirus has been wrong. So it doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm literally wrong about everything. My friends and I have, you know, I don't know. People who listen to the show a lot, or people will know that I have quite a gambling problem, and so like <laughs> um, my friends and I bet on football games in a way that you know, in a in a in a reasonably responsible way. Like it's never going to actually upset me to lose this amount of money. So small bets, but when we get on a bad streak, we just like Costanza it. You know, like do you remember in the Seinfeld where he just does <laughs> yeah. the opposite of every single thing that he did? Yeah. And I feel like for the coronavirus, if I had costanza myself every single time, I would have been right about everything because I was the exact wrong opposite about it every single time. Who knows? Don't listen to me is the point. Um, listen to Tammy. Maybe I don't know. Maybe yeah. it is hard to get a flu shot. I, I don't know. I haven't gotten one in years either. All right. So, you either? No, but that's clearly out of lazy. Andy's like, I'm never having dinner with you guys. <laughs> no, yeah. I will say I did not responsibly get my own flu shot until like recently when i was like responsible as an adult yeah so i think i think think it's a lot of people right yeah but that's like you can go to see like i went to cvs people are getting flu shots yeah yeah. you can do this the last time i tried to get one it was they were sold out but anyway it's possible yes i know um all right so let's move to the next topic which is we have two questions that we want to talk as topics the first one is uh andy's favorite this is a uh, this is an email from Kurt Majika. <laughs> and Kurt, thank you for writing the show. Um, I noticed that a he starts with some nice words to us that you guys can read that I won't have to report, Pete. But you know, just read them now so that we all feel good about ourselves. I noticed <laughs> that a lot of us non-tankies don't really take tankies seriously and either ignore them or ruthlessly mock them for their unbelievable levels of cognitive. <laughs> kind of worried as the quote new cold war narrative intensifies even more western twitter's teens like me who is he a teenager who have only recently been radicalized are going to think that anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism means denying that any valid criticisms exist of governments that are doing more real effed up cop shit maybe he is a teen right now we have garbage garbage cans like the chow collective and friends framing those beliefs as a nuanced uh, position outside of the Cold War propaganda that is completely compatible with emancipatory politics. Sad. So yeah, tankies, do you think uh, red fascism or what Wilfred Chan calls alt-imperialism is a legitimate concern? Do tankies represent a growing threat to future leftist movements, or are they mainly just harmless online eccentrics? Tammy Kim, your thoughts. Um, Okay, so before we start, for the listeners listeners who are not aware of what a tanky is can you just before we start just andy tell us what a tanky is uh a tanky is someone in the last two years specifically has supported chinese communist party chinese people republic of china state policies as a anti-imperialist position so when the united states supports protesters in hong kong the tanky who's uh, the other thing is the tanky is probably based in the united states or a western country uh they support the PRC's crackdown on Hong Kong protesters on the grounds that if the United States says it's good, it must be bad. And then same thing with Xinjiang more recently, that um, if the United States human rights people are whining about Xinjiang, then it must be a conspiracy theory. In reality, the PRC has good reason to do what they're doing with these camps in Xinjiang. Uh, and the, so like, right, and they, call, themselves, they like, call themselves leftists. Going into like Sudan or South Sudan and like, you know, 
buying sort of taking all the oil out and creating that sort of infrastructure their argument would be that's okay it's not imperialist because the united states would do it if china didn't do it yeah it the, the number one goal is whatever the united states does is bad so china must be good if it's challenging the united states that's the basic logic as far as i could tell okay so to me it, this has always seemed like do these people exist and i think this is basically what kurt is asking right like mm-hmm. Is this actually a movement of people that we have to think about and worry about? So I don't know. What do you guys think? Some uh, scholars and I have had conversations about this because uh, the kind of uh, famous thing that happened or, you know, internet famous thing that happened was the monthly review actually gave a forum for the Chow Collective to basically deny things in Xinjiang. And a lot of China scholars um, wrote like a letter that's like, this is bad. Right. What's the Chow Collective for our listeners? So the Chow Collective for me, I have no idea what it is. The Chow Collective for (laughs) our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) For our listeners. Uh, uh, Well, I mean, so like Brian, Brian Hugh from New Bloom wrote an article about this over the summer. We talked about it where uh, it's a anonymous online website that claims to be Chinese diaspora defending the Chinese state from a radical left perspective. Chow Chow means in Chinese, Chow means like diaspora, basically. And they claim the perspective of being diaspora, so they criticize all critics as basically being white and out of touch. Vijay Prashad and I think Nick Estes are two very famous leftist academics who have like signed on with the Chow Collective's agenda. Um, so they're so again, it's like on the internet they seem like a big deal, but it's like it's hard to tell. Like what like this is the conversation I've been having with people. Like, to what extent is this a big enough deal to actually address? Or is it just like online trolls? Um, I don't know, because honestly, like, you know, the last year we've basically existed um, on the internet only, you know, including teaching and all of our jobs. <laughs> but, you know, talking to friends, um, some of my friends say like the, a lot of their students in, in, in the university and not just like Chinese history students, just like uh, young leftists at, in their liberal arts colleges are tankies. Uh, because they've heard it from Nick Estes or Vijay Prashad or a lot of the socialist organizations in the United States, Party of Socialism Liberation is one of them, probably several others. They take the take they take the tanky line. They will say like Tiananmen was a staged event, um, and uh, you can't believe what you hear about Xinjiang and Hong Kong and all that stuff. Which again, it's like who who cares? Like these groups are domestic focused socialist organizations, right? They're the ones supporting a lot of anti police protests. They're the ones supporting a lot of the, you know, the domestic things that leftists believe in. And then you mean here in the United States, in the United States, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. on their website, they'll have that little tab that's like international issues. And they'll have yeah. like some crazy thing about how Tiananmen was staged by the United States CIA. And it's like, whoa, where did this come from? And, you know, like, what does it, what does it, how does it change our feelings about this group? Like on the one hand, you support American leftist groups, right. And, and like promoting these sort of the BLM protests over the summer, um, and you can't really blame them for not really knowing what's going on in China. On the other hand, it's like, well, to the extent these groups get a larger and larger audience, um, you do kind of hope they would be open to a conversation about these things. Um, and, and hopefully they're not like a vehicle through which a lot of this mis, uh, misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, uh, conspiratorial stuff gets, gets spread. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of torn. I don't know how real it is or not, but it does seem like it's building. Um, but um, I also kind of wonder if it's like a thing that like we as academics or we as podcasters can't do anything about. It's just gonna it's just it's just gonna happen no matter what. We as podcasters. 
<laughs> yeah, so like it seems like like many of these things, right? The fear is that they not the fear, but you know, but it, I'm sure we have some tanky listeners. So, you know, the the scenario that people are trying to game out is whether or not these people get an intellectual foothold in the mainstream, whether through the academy, which it seems like they already have, if what you're saying is correct, Andy, right. and then through larger, um, you know, through through movement politics, maybe even I'm sure they do a lot of organizing when they go out to these protests and stuff like that. And then, you know, I can see sort of the appeal if you're at Asian leftist and, you know, you don't feel really at home with a lot of the other leftist politics and you say what's the most hardcore thing i can do it's like well i'll just deny Xinjiang <laughs> and i'll say tiananmen <laughs> is fucking staged you know um, i don't know it's a pretty hardcore position like is, is that is that the general fear uh but so i think for, for the thing that we're also seeing is like um the people so like tanky doesn't come from the chinese context tanky comes from prague spring yeah right mm-hmm. and was, so it's an old position of basically supporting back then the ussr and then it would be like socialist governments in latin america uh, and then like Syria and then just like any sort of thing that the United States media says is bad mm-hmm. must be good. Yeah. So it's I think the real crit- critique, which, you know, I don't know if how how easy it is to turn this into a slogan, is that the tanky position is basically still making the United States the center of everything and just like inverting it. Right. But like it's not a really internationalist way of looking at the world. It's looking at the world purely through the lens of um, the United States and just trying to be yeah. like, you know. Being, being kind of hardcore and saying like anything you say is good must be bad you know and yeah i, I think that's very astute um that's that was generally my sense of it as well andy yeah like, it's like i don't know tammy what do you think to me their the, their relevance is that they make it hard for people like us yeah <laughs> in the sense I mean, like, that lit, you know, soft libs <laughs> yeah exactly that's what they turn us into right so i think um yeah seeing it play out in the east asian context for me the the way that it dichotomizes the conversation is the scariest. Yeah, I, I, I also understand. Look, it's going to get I think that one thing that we can agree is that it will probably accelerate at the point where if the Biden administration and the right wing of the GOP both convene to be super anti-China. Right. Mm-hmm. And then as a reaction, it will grow. Right. Because it's like, well, why, you know, you feel assaulted as an American who comes from China and you might as well just go as hardcore anti-American pro-China as possible. Um, it seems like maybe that'll happen. I don't know. I don't know any tankies personally, yeah. and I'm not right. in tanky Twitter. So I, this is all like new to me. Um, all right. Our second listen, Andy, what are you looking at? Are you watching a basket? Like, what are, <laughs> Andy's like I'm staring, listening, like, I'm listening to your voice, off, Jay. <laughs> oh staring, staring intensely off our Zoom yeah. screen. <laughs> um, all right. So the next question comes from uh, listener Cody Wilson, and we're going to play it here. He was one of the people who very nicely sent us a question through audio so that we could play it on the show. And, you know, if you guys want to do that um, going forward, we'd really appreciate it. You can just record yourself on your phone and email it to us and we'll play it on the show. Uh, the email is at or the email is time to say goodbye pod at gmail dot com. And uh, yeah, I think this will, you know, it gives a it gives a little audio texture to our show. You don't hear us. You, know, you don't hear me droning on forever. So, OK, Cody. Hi guys, my name is Cody, big fan. Uh, I I was hoping you guys could talk about uh, Jay's opinion piece in the Times about how immigrant populations shouldn't be treated as monoliths, which is absolutely a true statement, but I'd like to hear the perspective of the three of you on it. And one thing I wanted to bring up was, Jay cited several times the shifts in Latino voter trends in South Florida and in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, It's an interesting outcome there. 
But one thing I haven't seen widely cited is in the case of the Rio Grande Valley, if you look at there's three counties there that shifted like more than anywhere else in the country. And I worked for 12 years in research and development for technology for Homeland Security. And it was an absolute gold rush into those three counties. Billions of dollars were put into right there at that part of the border, putting in pilot programs and just an insane amount of money for a small population was dumped there. And if, if you Google, you'll see references to a border industrial complex. And I think it complicates a little bit that part of the story, but I guess that's your overall point, Jay, is the story's complicated and, and it isn't fair to look at these populations as one. But just thought I'd add that. All right. Thanks. Love you guys. Bye. All right. And Cody was also nice enough to send a follow-up email. And I'm going to read that now before we start answering his question, which is, I think there's been so much money put into that tiny area that all the spillover had to be a huge economic benefit. People staying in hotels, going to restaurants, construction projects, using local resources, et cetera. Over the last three years, every company was rolling into that area to lobby local politicians to try and get CBP support for their projects too, CBP being, being Border Patrol. The crazy money dumped into the southern border had impact all over the country, and I could see how it could have a real a statistical impact in the counties where much of that was uh, was spent. And so, uh, yeah, for I, the thing that he's responding to is I wrote an op-ed for the Times about like how I felt you know, it's basically just what we talk about on the show every single week. You know, I joked with <laughs> Tammy and Andy. He's like, I'm just going to write an op-ed that's a manifesto for our show, you know, <laughs> which is essentially saying that um, we should disaggregate a lot of Asian populations, disaggregate Latino populations, but, uh, and we should try and have more accurate understandings of these populations. And we meaning like, you know, broadly like progressive people and, you know, that support the Democratic Party because we have to. Right. If we want the Democratic Party to be better, then we should have them stop using this type of completely inaccurate and stupid identity politics that like basically says Latinos, you know, we like you, you know, Asians, we like you, too. You built the railroads, you know, we love your innovation and your hard work and hardworking spirit. Like, you know, like these types of appeals don't work on anyone, it seems like anymore, nor do I think that they ever worked on anyone, period. Um, and so Cody's. Uh, and in that piece, I cited some of the stuff that had happened in the counties in South Texas that everybody is or along the Rio Grande Valley that everybody is talking about where you had massive shifts to the right for Trump and South Florida as well. And so Cody, having worked there, is essentially arguing, I believe, that, you know, if outside of just saying like, hey, Latinos got mad because of X reason and they all voted for Trump. And he's saying there's a lot of economic factors that went into that as well, right? Like that this area got very wealthy very quickly, that new types of people came in, um, that the people who existed there started getting a different type of, you know, life, both through having better ac economic opportunity, but also, you know, going to work for some of these places, right? And that can change your political beliefs as well, and that you have to factor all this in. And what do I think about that, right? Um, I don't know. What what'd you guys think about, about Cody's question? Andy? Yeah, I go first. <laughs> I mean, I think I think yeah, it's an interesting thesis. I I, I almost feel like Cody should have um, given this tip to like an investigative journalist to really break it open uh, <laughs> instead of our podcast. Uh, because I think I think if it's true and, and like the numbers kind of bear it out, I think that could be a really interesting explanation. And um, just kind of clicking around, there were other people, other quotes out there, you know, interviewing these Tejano, the sort of fourth, fifth generation Texas Mexican immigrants, who were saying they voted Trump because they really support law enforcement. 
um, and they yeah. trust law enforcement. And, and Cody is basically saying the economy there is the law enforcement economy. And uh, so, you know, this plays right into the hands or for, for, for the Democrats to embrace a sort of anti-law enforcement position and then for the Republicans to play up a pro-law enforcement position. Uh, that absolutely matters much more to this community than some sort of tokenistic, you know, Trump is racist, uh, uh, you know, he, he eats taco salad kind of messaging, right? Um, yeah, I don't. I think one thing we should say, Andy, is that I don't think the Democrats ever really, the, you know, at least the Democratic establishment ever embraced like an anti-police. And Biden, but I will say that they were that they were effectively painted as having done so. And right? like yeah, can say that. and Biden, Biden did, you know, unequivocally denounce looting every chance he got. But he he tried his best to <laughs> to, to beat back this narrative, and I think he more or less failed, right? Yeah. But that um. Yeah, that it is a law enforcement economy, and when people, you know, work for a law enforcement economy, then they tend to side with law enforcement. You see it with every single police union in the country, basically supporting Trump, regardless of where they were. Right, like the New York City, you know, New York City, California, Minnesota, everywhere you look, the police unions are supporting Trump. Right, and why do they support Trump? Because they have a sense that the Democrats are anti-police, um, uh, and and that this actually goes to at least explain what happened in those two counties. Tammy, did you find that convincing? Yeah, I think I have to sit with it a second because I, <laughs> I did feel like it was really challenging. Although it, it's also familiar in the sense that this is how um, we can explain a lot of the voting patterns in like rural and sort of exurban areas where they've built federal or not federal state private prisons and state prisons. Um, but of course, the federal government is more likely to hire minorities than the states and, and private prisons have been. Um, and, and generally those have been in very white areas that become then completely purchased by the Republicans who support those. Um, so, you know, I mean, on a, on a very human level, knowing what we know about material conditions and <laughs> economic well-being, this makes a lot of sense. Um, it just, yeah, I guess it's a bit surprising or I'm still sort of digesting what we've all had to grapple with a bit more, which is, you know, some of the stuff that you're talking about in your article, Jay, but that so there are a lot of other factors that one would think would come into consideration. So Mitchell Fer Thur uh, Furman, who is a reporter for the Texas Tribune, wrote what I thought was a pretty good article on this, or like, not pretty good, I think it was a good article on this, which, uh, you know, he, he writes, like, aside from Hispanic heritage, most of the Rio Grande Valley and South Texas have a similar demographics to Trump's stronghold in rural communities across the country, said Representative Henry Cuellar, de uh, Democrat from Laredo, a moderate whose district includes both Star and Zapata counties. Those are the two big swing counties. It's homogenous, deeply religious, pensively pa uh, patriotic, socially conservative, and it's hurting economically. Trump's statements condemning protesters and backing law enforcement connected with voters in South Texas, where a significant portion of the population either works in law enforcement or has friends and family members who do. Federal law enforcement agencies advertise jobs on Instagram and Twitter to, uh, in border counties, and the Border Patrol employs more than 1,000 people in the Rio Grande Valley alone. 3,000. I'm sorry, what? 3,000. 3,000, I'm sorry. Um, Ernesto Alanis III, a land surveyor in Rio Grande City who voted for Trump, said the region's close ties to the military and law enforcement helped push more people toward Republicans this year. Quote, my Border Patrol agent friends say the wall works and helps them do their job, Alanis said from his office, where his Black Desert Storm veteran's cap sits next to a red MAGA cap 
guy's a good writer. If anyone would know if a wall worked, it would be them, right? Um, right. So this is sort of this idea that like along the border with law enforcement, right, within people who work in Border Patrol, who, by the way, are not really white, you know, it's not like white stormtroopers down there as the Border Patrol. Yeah. Um, it's people who would be classified as Latino, right, that, that, that they believe that the wall worked, right? Like they obviously have an incentive to, you know, make sure that the wall does work and that they feel like Trump supported them and that, you know, this is sort of the type of thing that you hear from a lot of Trump voters, which is he tried to do the things that he said he was going to do during his campaign and they sort of respect him for that, right? Um, yeah, so, I, I, wait, so yeah, go ahead. this is a stupid question to, to clarify. I, I wasn't really, sh I, I guess this is what Cody's original question was. Is there like a real noticeable, huge uptake of investment into the law enforcement post-Trump that was not there with Obama? I guess, like, how do you explain the 2020 swing versus the 2016 right. swing? Is that is that what we're saying that Trump actually, after he got into office, poured even more money into there, and that led to this huge swing with the next cycle? I think that that because depends. the wall was not really part of the campaign this year, you know, rhetorically. Speaking. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I think that assumes way too much of like a distinct uh, of like people making decisions based on distinct pieces of information, right? Like the perception, even if a lot of the money started pouring in during the Obama administration, the guy who's going to be tr out there like screaming about it every day is the one who's going to get credit for it, right? Which, yeah. Who was Trump? Um, and I don't know. I, I I think that that it was a it was an interesting sort of rejoinder, at least like a question to me, because I do think that when you're writing an, an op-ed, right, for the Times, that you have to be a little bit broad by definition, but. Uh, I think that the thing that I took away from this is that, like, I believe that this is true, but I don't think that it is exclusive. And it means that, like, that we should not look at the Rio Grande Valley and we should just write it off as saying, oh, it's because of this. In the yeah. same way that we shouldn't just look at South Florida and be like, it's those fucking crazy Cubans <laughs> who hate Castro, you know, because it wasn't just the Cubans in, in South Florida. It was also Venezuelans. It was Nicaraguans, right, who, who swung towards Trump. And, you know, like in the same way that you can't just say like, well, Orange County is like its own thing. So like the Asian swing towards like uh, Republican Congress people and towards Trump and in Orange County doesn't matter because, you know, it's just like Vietnamese people who hate Chinese people and Vietnamese people who, you know, hate communism. Like, I think that those are all very incomplete things. And the, the truth of the matter is that, yes, economics do factor into this obviously but the reality of it is that a lot of these immigrant populations around the country are entering the middle class in a very significant way and um their economic interests are going to change right they're not going to always like they're going to yeah. act more like white middle class people i think than uh, than than people will assume and that the the point of the article that i wrote was essentially just that like you can't just say we're not racist to those people Right. Because they're like, well, I don't care if you're not racist, you know, first of all, like, you know, you don't even think about me. So like you, you're not even really that racist towards me. You know, we're not even like when you're saying we're not racist, you're not talking about not racist towards me. But that, you know, like these types of little mini things happening around the country, I think are pushing people towards the right. You know, and the Democrats don't really have like a counter to any of that. Like, I don't see anything where the Democrat like what's their Democrat counter to something like Cody was describing in the Rio Grande Valley where there's like, well, you know, we all know people who work in CBP and CBP says it was better under Trump and they worry about what it's going to mm -hmm. be around Biden and maybe we'll lose jobs, we'll lose funding, all this sort of stuff. Like what, what's really the counter there? Like, but, 
I think there's something else going on in that area, which this is totally anecdotal, but about six or seven years ago, I was doing some reporting in Laredo and, you know, Laredo is right across from Nuevo Laredo, right? In Mexico. And it's one of those um, areas that used to be perfectly sort of porous, like cross-border community, right? And then as we get into like the 90s and the 2000s with the porousness of our southern border being cut off, I think like there's a way in which people's resentment has been really hardened. So like I did interviews with like very poor people there who would have been Medicaid eligible, but Texas hadn't expanded Medicaid. And like the first thing they would say is talk about like how like Mexicans in Nuevo Laredo suck and how it's violent and like they're ruining that area and stuff like that. And so I think like those kinds of sentiments, which are kind of like basically false class sentiments that are like exacerbated by like our federal policy have been kind of hardened and made people more reactionary during the Trump era. So Mm -hmm. They, you know, they they themselves were Mexican descendant, right? Yeah, sorry, I should have clarified. Yeah, like they're like basically first and second generation, but that was a way to distinguish themselves. So like the good bad immigrant thing is part of it, you know. But but I do think like um, yeah, and it, it, I I think it's something like what Jay was talking about, how where it's sort of like an ambient thing that then becomes hardened when someone in power starts saying it a lot, you know. And anyway, but that was a way that was just an example of how like even you know, without having ascended into the middle class, like you could sort of adhere to that fiction, you know? Yeah. And one, one other thing that I've seen floating around is just that the Democrats or the Biden campaign just didn't do anything uh, in a lot of these organizations, (laughs) communities, like at the grassroots level. So obviously there was some of that by grassroots organizations um, in the, you know, the very famous stories at at this point of Arizona and Georgia. Mm -hmm. I I think, the other thing that's kind of missing for me in this story, and maybe I'm just not reading the right outlets, what did the Republicans do? How did they know, know. exactly how to cater their message to this particular well, demographic okay, so in, in, in Florida and in, Texas and so on? In South Texas, Greg Abbott, you know, who, like George Bush, has a Mexican-American wife, right, um, did tons of campaigning down in the Rio Grande Valley starting in 2014. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that in your piece. And so um, they started building an infrastructure down there for the GOP, and it was never countered by any Democrats within the state. And uh, that worked, right? Because then you start seeing Trump trains, you you have like Facebook groups, you have all the sort of in, little tiny mechanisms to like create big turnout to get out messaging. There's no counter to it. And so, you know, I'm sure there are people down there who are never going to vote Republican, but certainly there are people who are influenced or are able to be influenced. In South Florida, this is according to Chuck Roca, you know, the guy who like yeah. T.O. Bernie and and did a lot of the campaign stuff for the Bernie Sanders campaign that was very effective. He said down there it was the same thing that like starting in July, that their radio, like Spanish language radio was inundated with this stuff. You know, Spanish, uh, Spanish language Facebook posts, like groups like this were starting to get hit hard with these sorts of messaging. Now, I, you know, I don't know if that means that everybody ends up, you know, I, I had this hard time under when people make these types of arguments, seeing people as these like sort of influenceable vessels (laughs) where they're just like, oh, I read a fake Facebook post. Now I believe this thing, you know, but obviously it had some sort of effect and it will always have some effect if you do nothing to counter it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in South Florida, like Biden didn't do anything. Biden didn't even campaign, you know, which I, you know, you can argue if that was good or bad, given that we're in a pandemic, but there is no real thought to any of this and i don't know i always just go back to like the first days of the dnc and um you know like that was sort of biden's statement about race or whatever like that right like remember this and like it was like biden doing his like i i listen i i hear you you know me type of thing and 
promising absolutely no sort of action and just being like, we need to come together as a country. Um, I don't know. I think the reason why I wrote this piece was just because I felt like that is just not going to work. And, you know, I tend to, I've looked at some of these numbers, like um, uh, David Shore, who is now everybody's favorite, like political wonk, has come out and basically said, if we lose these margins, like we're never going to win it. It's going to be impossible for us to win because of gerrymandering the electoral college, all these sorts of things, right? Like we basically needed um, record turnout during a pandemic, the most people who ever voted, massive get out the vote campaigns everywhere to barely win. You know, so then like what's going to happen when it's not somebody as hated as Trump? Yeah. Like what if Nikki Haley runs or something like that? Right. Um, or like what if like Tom Cotton runs? Like, is it going to be that easy to turn out people just because they hate somebody that they don't really know who they are? You know, yeah. um, I don't know. So I was very worried about that. And so I don't know. I, I think that that was I don't know. Did you guys have any thoughts about about that? I don't want to like go on and on about something that I. <laughs> no, I think I think I think this question of does the GOP actually have this multiracial constituency yeah. now is going to be a good question, and you know we you know we've talked ch- talked online about people agreeing and disagreeing with that. I think it's an open question that people will be talking about for a while. I saw an academic friend of mine posted something on Facebook about how why do leftists all read Gramsci and then can't actually do like can't actually like pull off anything <laughs> but in the right conservatives never read Gramsci but actually like pulled off the sort of hegemonic strategy of having a multi-class multi-racial coalition <laughs> so depressing the Democrats tried it right like the, that was a rainbow coalition right um, yeah, yeah, yeah tried it yeah yeah no, tried sure. it in the 80s um and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's not like it didn't work. That, that seems like one of those things where it like didn't work, but that when you actually analyze the reasons why it didn't work, it wasn't because yeah. the idea was bad, you know? And so like people don't want to go back to it. And, you know, it goes to all these problems that we talk about all the time, which is that you have this sort of Ivy League class of like, uh, you have like, you know, democratic operatives who think of everything in data, right? And they, they sort of try and t- they focus group everything and they try and find like very easy solutions to these problems. It seems like the solution to this problem is going to be actually very difficult. And I don't even know, you know, after I wrote the piece, I thought about it a little bit. And I was like, is this even fixable? You know, like, yeah. are, can you win this fight? I tend to think no. You know, like, I don't, I don't know how you, how you convince, like, how do you quickly change it? How do you, how do you come up with like an appeal to immigrants who are essentially just like, I just want to be left alone. I don't care about racism. In fact, many of my relatives are racist as well, you know, and uh, I just want my kid to go to a good school and I don't want anyone getting in the way with it, you know, like, um, or I want to make as much money as I, as I can and live the American dream. Um, like, what are you going to do? You're going to like lecture them and be like, the American dream is a fiction, you know? Like, how dare you buy into the model minority myth? Like, <laughs> these are like not effective yeah. positions. And, and I think something else I saw being discussed, um, I think it was in reaction to this article that I think a lot of the Democrats' attitude towards quote unquote POC was basically taking the black, white, sort of racial history in this country and just copying and pasting it and assuming it yeah. applied to all groups such that if you're the anti-white supremacy um, party, then you should get all non-white groups. And that yeah. actually works very well in the South for black voters, but like it's very stark, right? That 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 um, contrast between who do black residents, citizens over and white residents. Um, but that doesn't really apply to the other groups in this country. Uh, maybe it did at the beginning, it seems like it did more so. And that's why the Democrats were so confident that they had this demographic advantage in the future. But, you know, the last few elections have, have begun to um, veer away from that conclusion, right? 
Yeah, the question of like who can build a multiracial, multi-class, multi-ethnic coalition better, right? What would be the Democrats' pitch in, to do that outside of, you know, white supremacy and racism and all this sort of stuff? Yeah. I'm having, you know, this is an aside, but I'm just having a lot of problems recently with that term in general. White supremacy? Like white, white Which supremacy. Term? Oh, white supremacy. I think that it has actually uh, become too vague and... You know, it's been used so much that it is actually completely, it's very inexact, right? Like, I don't know when people use it, what it's evoking anymore. Am I, am I being crazy here? I never really used it. When does it most bother you? Like in academic, do you think it's being used too much in like wokey academic settings? I just think that it's like a catch-all explanation for things, right? That I don't understand what, I never really quite understand what they're talking about it's like stressful racism it's like well if everything is racist then nobody is really racist it's just that one bothers me a lot more <laughs> structural racism bothers you more yeah but they're kind yeah. of the same the same thing right it's just, it's... i always think of like a parking structure you know, <laughs> the, <laughs> a racist parking structure <laughs> we're but there no japanese are allowed in this fucking parking space <laughs> you go park over there on the street bitch <laughs> infrastructural racism <laughs> Yeah, um, but um, I oh, don't I know. In I... response to your question, though, like I don't think it's possible to build a multi-class coalition right now. The Republicans um, why not? Kind of are doing it though. What the Republicans yeah, are kind of doing it. Rich people, and then you know people who didn't go to college, basically. I mean, I think calling it a coalition is very like complimentary, but yeah, I mean, I think they're cynically attracting those parts i don't know on the democratic side what that would look like i mean i think like i think the republicans are able to do it because there's a sort of um i guess it goes back to the bootstrapping that we've talked about on the show before the kind of fantasy of upward mobility is that what the democrats would have to do to get that i don't think it's worth it i think we should go i think the democrats should be a working class party yeah but i, nobody I don't think that's working possible class. though yeah. Because I know. So Democrats are like the Democrats are like Pod Saves America, you know? <laughs> like the Democrats like and I'm not talking about everyone who's a Democrat. I'm just talking about the people who are in charge of the party. Right. right. Like like I don't it's, Yeah. It's people like that. It's like Robbie Mook. It's it is what Chuck Roker calls a woke white consulting class, right? It's people who would go work for McKinsey or they would go become corporate lawyers, but they decide that they're like, Oh, I really like politics, you know, I'm gonna get in the fight. And they have one way of looking at things. And how do you overhaul that entire party? Like, I don't think you can. Yeah. I mean, that's why we supported Bernie, because I thought that's the direction it was going in, right? And at the, But I think, like, you were giving an accurate description of what it is. But what I was saying is, I think, like, what I think they should do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, how that would occur is... I think they should just run back the Rainbow Coalition, but you know, like I don't think that's a particularly popular. Maybe they could change the name, you know, but like it's either. like a. <laughs> have you have you got any um strong pushback, Jay, from the piece or generally no. complimentary? I don't know. You know, I pay attention to this stuff, and I won't lie and say that I don't. You know, so I see where people post it, and I get the tweets that people send me. Not really, and you know, I don't. I don't know. I was kind of surprised, but I I, I find that when I make these types of arguments that. A lot of people just ignore it or they agree with it. Um, 
or maybe maybe my online presence is so toxic that people are <laughs> not that they're afraid, but they don't they, think it's worth it to argue with they me. Don't which, tag you. You know, I under I understand, you know, like I, <laughs> it's like it's like look if I if I say something about it, it'll be like two tweets, and then he'll go full ad hominem and go on for like six months. It's true, you know, but um, <laughs> no, I haven't really gotten that much. I haven't gotten that much pushback about it. Um, I don't know. It just seems so logical to me, right? Like I don't. I didn't, I felt like this was such an obvious thing to say, and um, I don't really have much to add to it. Um, not that I think like I knocked it out the park or anything like yeah, that, but no. you know, like I, I think I tried to put in, and it was very long, so I don't think that, I don't think I skipped anything. I have a question about, towards, so towards the end, you kind of make this pivot about, pivot about people of color more broadly. Yeah. Um, and your argument in that section is basically that the focus should be immobilization of working class immigrants. Yeah. I think, right? So, but can you talk about that? Like, why wouldn't it just be working class immigrants and Native people and Black people? Well, it would be, but I'm just talking about within these groups when you think about them or when you talk about them, right? Um, I think that basically right now the messaging around immigrant groups Latinos, not as much as Asians, but, you know, still is controlled by people who, you know, are, have the same educational background as the pod saves people, right? Um, and that they work in media and that a lot of their concerns tend to be about things like affirmative action, right? Which is essentially a concern for people going to college and in the workplace. And um, they are also about like, you know, like, I don't know, like fucking Hollywood representation and stuff like that. And that for there to be an actual coalition, of progressive immigrant people, right? That we can't really, we have to sort of abandon that. And the reason why I think that is because I don't think that we can do both. I don't think that we can both focus on those things and focus on like, you know, the fact that like Koreans have massive, uh, you know, have like a high percentage of home foreclosures, or sign a ton of predatory loans, or that, you know, working conditions and certain places in Los Angeles are terrible, right? Or that like people don't have access to healthcare or that people don't have access to whatever, like good at, you know, basic educational things, school segregation, all these questions that are much more, you know, I think that are much more sympathetic for most people and most voters. Um, they're sort of pushed by the wayside every single time. And I don't mean to throw anyone in the bus here, but you saw it when, and it's not just it's not just immigrants. I think it's every discussion about race gets funneled into this because of the people who are in charge of creating that conversation. You see it during the George Floyd protests. How many days did it take for the people in the media to turn what was like a national uprising into a conversation about representation within the media and like within elite media companies? It took like five days, you know, <laughs> and then how much of it was about like fucking Bon Appetit? I don't, I don't know who that person is. I have nothing against them, but like, you know, about like the Bon Appetit channel and stuff like that. Right. So then you have these insurrections within these elite institutions, right, that are totally unsympathetic to everybody else who's outside of them. And yet, because the people who are in charge of the messaging and putting those messages out are completely consumed by them that message is the one that gets out there, you know? And so that's where I think we can't do both. Like you, we should never talk about that other stuff, right? We can talk about it in HR meetings and talk about it within chat groups or whatever, or like, you know, like the people who run the unions that, that are um, in the news media should bring it up and they should discuss it. Of course, there should be diversity in media, but like it cannot become the entire conversation, which it almost always does. And so my general argument is that like, should just advance, not talk about that stuff anymore. All right. Yeah. Well, or as you were saying, just talk about it even when it's appropriate, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. That makes it's not sense. appropriate to like, for like, I, I look, I didn't, I'm not trying to throw anyone on the bus because I have nobody in mind here. Right. It is not appropriate for like, you know, like a Korean American person who went to like uh, Ivy League school to look at the George Floyd protests and then, you know, start thinking about like <laughs> the fact that they feel the bamboo ceiling is preventing them from being like a staff writer at the New Yorker or something like that. Right. Like that, that's like, it's like stupid. And so, um, I don't know. I, I just think that you can't actually build any type of coherent messaging that actually goes to these voters when the issues are always so focused on these elites. I don't know. Did, it, I thought I would get pushed back on that point, but you know, I don't well, know. people generally yeah. don't read. I mean, that's why I was article. asking the question because I think, again, your argument is more about the way that whatever people of color is has been used as opposed to the actual like conditions on the ground for like coalition work. Yeah. So I, I use I think people of color is sort of that. like a term that is used in those contexts almost exclusively. That's the yeah, like I was yeah, I, I've been struggling with that too, so I think that's right. Do you think that's not true? Do you think people of color is used in other contexts? Um I'm not talking about the historical part of it. I'm yeah, yeah, no, I know. I think yeah, I think it can be, but I think well, you guys know this cuz we we talked we talked about this over the summer, but I think it's been used I think in the context in which it's tried to, it's been used more practically, it's actually fallen out of favor more or become like less useful. It's so yeah. I, the Kambahi context? No, just like organizing. Okay. Yeah, I think like, yeah, like in that story I'd written over the summer, like I was trying to puzzle through that because I did think like it used to be sort of much more useful in organizing. And now it seems like it's being critiqued a lot more. And yeah, maybe now it's just relegated to these sort of like diversity spaces. Yeah. The other thing that I was like, that I was interested in your take on, you know, because we haven't really talked about it, but like, you know, was that, what about this idea that I don't think it really works to just basically disaggregate everybody, you know, and just to do specific hyper-focused messaging yeah. towards everybody. For electoral and, politics? Yeah. yeah, for electoral politics. Like, I don't think you can be like, this is our Nicaraguan strategy yeah, totally. in Florida. <laughs> this is our Korean strategy in Orange, Orange County. This is our Indian strategy in Jackson Heights, yeah, yeah, yeah. Queens. You know, like, I don't think that that works really. Like, because I think that you can basically do things like that are kind of cute and cool. Like, you know, you can write it. You, you should write it in different languages. That seems very basic to me. Yeah. You know, you can do things like, hey, they're on this social media yeah. app. Let's do this social media. That only works to the point where the other side doesn't go, hey, let's do it in different languages <laughs> and put it in social media app, you know? And then you're tied again, you know? You have to figure out something else. You're like, let's print it on the... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's go to the fucking hot Koreatown spots and let's print it on the bottom of the fucking menu. Like, you know, like uh, when, you, when you turn over an In-N-Out cup, there's like the Bible verse on, yeah, the, yeah, on yeah. the little bottom yeah. of the rim. Like, so what are you going to do? Um, no, yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah. think that works. And Andy, what do you think? Look, if, if you believe that people's interests are shaped not by the race they belong to but by their material like concerns that that to, to live to make money to you know is the economy stupid then like this is um another point where it doesn't make any sense to just critique one racial or ethnic category only to settle into other ones and new ones right yeah and, and which is what we talked about on election night where people were trying to say latino is incoherent it's black and white you know like that, yeah. that doesn't actually solve the the issue where um if your theory of like society, how society works, how people think is it's shaped much more by money and economic factors than it is by like your identity uh, in a, some sort of abstract, you know, nationalistic racial sense, then 
if you believe that, then your messaging should be about uh, speaking to people's material interests. And that cuts across race and cuts across gender and, and so on, right? So, yeah. yeah. I think the one exception to this might be if you are trying to message to people who've just come from yeah. socialist or communist nations, you would just want to, like, might have a slightly t- more, you so know, I different think, or tender framing. Well, a lot of those people can't vote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> so our way out. Count. They don't count. That's just terrible. pragmatically, like, they don't, they can't and oftentimes don't vote. I think, but. I, so we're, we're running too long, so we should talk about this maybe another time. But one thing I have been thinking about was um, I, as a friend of mine on Twitter, posted this interesting argument about how there, there might be a way in which we could explain that sort of immigrant vote in terms of what are the values in those actual existing socialist countries and how they in a very bizarre exactly. way very bizarre way line up with neoliberal values right so it's sort of like they complain about the role of the state in the economy but a lot of in a lot of other ways the sort of social darwinian uh we don't care about your feelings we only care about progress kind of way of looking at the world it actually kind of lines up between sort of right-wing neoliberalism and like actual existing socialism in asia or latin america and the point the point being like it can't just we can't just explain the sort of anti-communist vote based on like what's wrong with them from an american mm-hmm. context we actually we could actually mm-hmm. look about like what do they actually what is their life experience for those 30 years before they actually moved to this country um which i don't think anyone in the united states commentary yet really ever you know thinks about right mm. but we, i mean yeah. we could talk about that another time this episode is that's interesting. Yeah. We have gone on too long. Um, okay. Is there anything else? Um, yeah. We have nothing to plug this week, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm supposed to be talking to uh, Teku Lee at some point in the near future, who is a academic at Cal, who studies a lot of these types of questions about immigrant voting groups and he has a bunch of data and you know certainly far more it's not just somebody ripping off hot takes you know based on exit polling or anything like that and we think that'll bring a lot of context to it so i'm gonna bother him to come on our show a little bit more so look out for that um you can always this show is really run and i think it is uh you know i think it is fueled by your response we say this every week but we say it because we mean it and so please keep sending us emails time to say goodbye at the time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can hit us on twitter at ttsg pod or you can just hit any of our individual twitters which you know you can find pretty easily um and uh yeah i will talk to you guys next week Sei con me, con me, come a luna, tu sei qui con me.